Welcome to Phrenesis, a show dedicated to issues in political philosophy. Each episode will take a close look at important essays and ideas in political and social thought, linking them to historical and contemporary debates, which is to say, finding where they are discussed in the footnotes to Plato. Uh, welcome to another episode of Phrenesis. I'm uh, Will Lombardo, joined by Bradley Davis, uh, as usual. Uh, today, we have on a, a guest that we're really, really excited about. Uh, professor Samuel Goldman is an associate professor of political science at uh, George Washington University, uh, where he focuses on uh, political theory and religion and politics, especially. He's also the executive director of the John L. Loeb Institute for Religious Freedom and the director of the Politics and Values Program. Uh, in 2018, he published his first book, God's Country, Christian Zionism in America, uh, and has a book forthcoming this May, I believe, Professor Goldman. Is that right? That's right. May. Um, and uh, it, you, having written it, uh, know much more about it than I can get from uh, you know, the blurbs that... Uh, I think UPenn Press has put out. Um, do you want to give a, a broad overview without spoiling any of the content, uh, just for what we can look forward to? <laughs> it would be it would hardly be a spoiler since so much is available on the Amazon page and elsewhere. Um, but basically, the book is my intervention in some of the recent debates about nationalism. Um, and more than a prescriptive argument, it's an investigation of some of the different and in certain ways opposed conceptions of national identity that have been prominent in the American past, but that also I think are still with us. And, and we're, we're both looking forward to reading that. And I, uh, I anticipate us uh, uh, you know, running a review, engaging with uh, you know, this work, which is sure to be uh, you know, uh, valuable to, uh, you know, a discourse surrounding nationalism that's been, um, kind of unfocused and convoluted. Um, uh, and, and that brings us to today's topic, which is, I think, somewhat related to this issue. Uh, we, we chose, uh, a heretofore unpublished lecture by Leo Strauss. Uh, it's called Religion and the Commonweal in the Tradition of Political Philosophy. Uh, treating the role of uh, civic religion and uh, Strauss is uh, particularly interested in, in whether a society can exist uh, without them. And I think, uh, and I'm sure we'll discuss this later, but it's hard to conceive of American nationalism specifically uh, without discussing it very as very intimately related uh, to religion. Uh, and this is actually, uh, so this lecture was delivered as uh, a talk at the Hillel House at the University of Chicago, which funny enough, this is actually the second Strauss lecture at the Hillel House that we're discussing. Our second or third episode was uh, the, the talk, Why We Remain Jews. Um, and I, you know, I, I was wondering, uh, Professor Goldman, whether you'd, uh, you know, give a, a, a broad overview of what you think the significance of this is before we uh, you know, dive into the argument he makes. Um, why, why, you know, is it a, a valuable intervention on, on this discussion now? Um, and, uh, you know, why is it worth reading? Yeah, so uh, this lecture, as you mentioned, is one of a number of talks that Strauss delivered at the Hillel House uh, at the University of Chicago in the 1950s and early 1960s. Um, and as the 
introductory remarks in the published version suggest, these are really some of Strauss's most interesting and also most accessible statements. Um, accessible because he is speaking relatively informally to a wide audience, and interesting because in these talks, he focuses on the issue that he once described as the great theme of his intellectual career, the theological political problem. Um, Unfortunately for us, Strauss never precisely defined that problem. And after having written an unsuccessful dissertation about it, I'm not sure that I quite understand what he meant by it. Um, but the setting at the Hillel House devoted to sustaining uh, Jewish intellectual, religious, and cultural life within a university setting was really an ideal place for Strauss to develop some of his reflections on this topic. Um, and if you are interested in what Strauss has to say on the so-called theological political problem, these lectures are among the most instructive texts. Uh, some of them published, including Why We Remain Jews, which appears, I believe, in um, a volume edited by the scholar Kenneth Hart Green, called Jewish Philosophy and the Crisis of Modernity, but also some of these texts uh, hitherto unpublished, uh, although they've circulated in transcript form for a number of years. So this uh, text is particularly exciting um, because it gives those of us who are not intimate members of the Strauss Studies Circle access to these documents that have been known for a number of years in many cases, but have never been properly published and edited before. And you, 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 you raise the point of the theological political problem, which he lays out pretty, pretty immediately. If we uh, uh, can, you know, just dive right in right now, um, and he frames it uh, actually in a way um, that I don't know that I really heard, but um, as a as a tension between uh, the universal and the particular that's met in a middle by some vaguely defined culture. Um, so that all, all religions make a claim to universality. Um, all politics, as we know, are, 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 are particular. Um, and, uh, and, but we think of religion as culture, which is, which, which is something that exists weirdly in the middle of those. But I, I was wondering, um, uh, you mentioned you wrote a dissertation on it and it's difficult to, uh, uh, to define, but uh, whether we could a a approach this with a, a different uh, definition of the theological political problem or what you think, what your, what your studies have, have taught you that that is. Well, my understanding is that what Strauss means by the theological political problem um, is a sort of tripartite tension. Uh, and I and perhaps others have been misled in the past by thinking of it only in terms of the relation between religion and politics. But I think it, it really has to involve a, a third term, which is philosophy, uh, particularly philosophy in the rather special sense in which Strauss construes that term. And the problem, as I understand it, and certainly as it's presented in this essay, is that both religion and politics make certain claims on human life that are incompatible with each other, 
but also incompatible with the claims of philosophy. And what Strauss presents here is the challenge that has been faced by generations, thousands of years uh, of Western political philosophers is the challenge of triangulating these, these demands, which I think can, can be characterized uh, somewhat as follows. Um, uh, the claim of politics or the demand of politics is obedience to the political community, to, to the, the law, in effect. The claim of religion is obedience to a transcendent and personal God. And I, I think it's necessary to underline that for Strauss, religion necessarily refers to a personal God. And this allows him to abstract from the efforts in philosophical religion or natural theology that have found favor with philosophers uh, over the last several thousand years. Finally, philosophy, as he presents it, uh, involves unswerving loyalty to the conclusions of human reason which can include negative conclusions. It's, it's not only to knowledge, but also to the possibility that we don't know or can't know to a kind of Socratic ignorance. And the theological political problem is a way of characterizing the predicament that not all of these things seem to go together. If you devote yourself to any one of these options, you will inevitably find yourself in conflict uh, with the demands of at least one of the others and potentially both of them. And so it's long seemed to me that perhaps not perfectly, but, but in broad strokes, Judaism somewhat uh, fulfills all three of those aspects you, you just mentioned for Strauss. Uh, he describes uh, Rabbi Pekarsky, who this lecture is given in honor to, uh, in honor of, uh, he spoke, Rabbi Pekarsky did not protest against those who tried to reduce Judaism to social ethics on the one hand into an ethnic culture on the other, since both parties retain a part, however small the ancient truth. And since their very antagonism, the antagonism between the universal and the particular, points to the full truth, the chosen people, the people chosen to be witness of justice. And elsewhere in sort of his introductory remarks, he talks about... Um, how Rabbi Pekarsky was able to somewhat mediate between different groups of people coming from a, a very political angle or a very religious angle. And somehow there's a, a seemed to me at least to be a, a sense of, of prudence that Judaism in particular, perhaps, or, or uh, maybe just Rabbi Pekarsky uh, is able to somehow employ to mediate between the these different poles, the, the political, the religious, and the philosophic. Does that seem right? Or? Well, this is one of the real ambiguities in uh, Strauss's thought. So in several places, um, really going back to his uh, German works of the 1930s, Strauss suggests that Judaism, and we should say not only Judaism, sometimes he suggests that Islam offers a parallel option, had found a way not of reconciling 
these demands. Uh, I think Strauss is fairly clear here and elsewhere that fundamentally these, these claims cannot be, be reconciled, but at least of managing them in a prudent and sustainable fashion. Um, and for Strauss, uh, this, this option represented by Judaism and Islam had in some ways been prepared or prefigured by Plato, particularly in the laws, which describes on Strauss's interpretation a form of regime in which the demands of religion and politics are balanced in a manner that permits philosophy, provided that philosophy does not become obtrusive. And that's the subject of, of this, this essay. Uh, Strauss asks, in effect, where we derive the idea um, that every form of religious expression should be permitted, including anti-religious expression. And that in order to permit and protect a, an unrestricted range of ideas, the state or government itself should not be affiliated or should not endorse any particular religious doctrine. Um, Strauss argues, and I think that broadly he's speaking right, broadly speaking he's, he's right, that that is a uniquely modern idea, which would have come as a great surprise, even to advocates of philosophical freedom like Plato, who nevertheless seem to acknowledge the necessity of a political religion uh, for practical purposes. And, and so Strauss like like he does with many of these he starts with uh i am a social scientist not a you know not a theologian something he always a sort of socratic humility when approaching these uh these topics um but you know want, wants to approach it as you said asking where does it come from and so he turns to the tra tradition of political philosophy and to where where he thinks the beginning is well he start he starts with aristotle um that that makes me wonder um and 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 maybe I'm, I'm I'm mischaracterizing the Greek religion. Whether the problem of the indefeasible commands of a personal god, uh, you know, personal god in the um, any of the Abrahamic religions sense, and the demands of the city, um, I guess whether that was a problem because it wasn't an impersonal religion. Uh, but 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 he I mean he does he does regardless uh, you know seem to think that there was a way that they needed to be um, needed to be harmonized and is it is it fair to say that that was by depersonalizing the gods was that was that the the solution of um, you know he suggests uh, uh, Plato but Aristotle as well well so Strauss I think resists if he doesn't reject the suggestion that this is uniquely a problem of biblical monotheism, which is not an unfamiliar argument. There are people who say, yes, in the ancient world, there were all of these different gods and nobody really believed in them. Uh, so beyond the, the civic purposes um, of ritual, people were sort of free to believe and say what they want. That's not Strauss's interpretation uh, of the ancient world. And um, Socrates, or at least the literary Socrates, is the symbol of that. Uh, 
Socrates is, is executed for disbelieving in the gods of the city in the way that the city believed in the gods of the city. And for Strauss, that is relatively similar to biblical religion, uh, even if it doesn't pose the problem quite so radically as biblical religion does. But I think you're right that he suggests that the classical pagan philosophers were able to find a practical solution, if not a solution in principle, by distinguishing between what might be called civil theology and philosophical theology. Civil theology focuses on the gods of the cities and the rituals devoted to those gods that encourage civic participation and solidarity. And again, on Strauss's account, which I, I think is accurate, um, all the, the significant classical political philosophers thought that was necessary. But at the same time, they suggest that that is not true theology, that the gods of the city are false, or at least they're false in the way that normal people believe in them. And there's a parallel track of philosophical theology that leads not to a personal god or personal gods, but to a, a, a sort of um, cosmic moralism. And Aristotle himself suggests in, in the metaphysics that the heavenly bodies are are in a sense, gods, not the, not the way uh, that Zeus was a god, but they're gods in the sense that they are uh, eternal and they are subject to, to rational understanding. So how could those things be, be reconciled? Strauss's answer is that they are reconciled through a kind of practice of humility, according to which philosophers in their public personae acknowledge all the rituals of the city and its gods, but perhaps in private, in closed circles, or even in a certain obscure way in their written texts, try to redirect a select number of readers or followers toward the true form of philosophy. This is, in effect, Strauss's account of philosophical esotericism. But it's a practical solution that becomes much harder to sustain. And I, I, it seems to me he doesn't get into that quite so much here as he does in some other texts in the face of biblical religion, which confronts the demands of reason on Strauss's account with an irreducible claim of, of revelation which requires faith. It can't be understood. It can't be proved with evidence. It can't be justified. And that demand for obedience in faith rather than merely practical obedience seems harder to reconcile with the philosophical triangulation that might have been possible uh, for the Greeks or the Romans. I'd like to take a, a slight step back. Um, and, and so early on in the, this lecture, Strauss sets up two poles uh, of life uh, in society, there being government and religion, government being subcultural, religion being supracultural. And he discusses how religion is this universal, um, 
some deviation with different religions, but broadly speaking, it is is for all men uh, is universal. While government, the commonweal, is particular, and, and there's a cultural problem in here um, that confused me a little bit, uh, lying in between government and religion. Strauss says something about how culture collapses the universal and, and makes that into a, a the form of a particular, um, which which struck me as, as maybe a little odd, um, but it, it runs in parallel, I think, to another problem uh, I'm having that, that I, I'd love to hear your take on. And that's both in this essay, uh, both in this lecture, which was given uh, January 1963, and uh, in The City of Man, which was published uh, later in 1963, Strauss starts his discussion off uh, with Aristotle's politics as being the classical document of Greek political philosophy, the original statement of political philosophy, the, the comprehensive account of political science, which has al- always struck me uh, as odd that, I mean, you mentioned earlier Strauss's return to, to Plato's laws and the importance that has uh, for him. Certainly the Republic seems quite important. Nowhere in this lecture is, um, well, Thucydides, I don't believe, is mentioned as he's treated in City and Man, but Homer is conspicuously absent as well. And in my mind, if, if I were to try and understand the origins of the role of gods in, in political life, um, it seems like Homer would be the first place to go, uh, not to skip him and Plato's accounts of how to deal with Homer, and not to go go straight to Aristotle's politics. Um, wh- what is it about the politics that that Strauss thinks it is so important to start with, uh, and what can it tell us differently or, or uh, more comprehensively that, than anything Plato, Thucydides, or Homer have to offer? Well, I'm not so sure about the role of Plato here or the relation between Plato and Aristotle, um, which, as you mentioned, Strauss discusses at some length, although not great length, um, in The City and Man. And it's striking that given his description of Aristotle as the the founder of of political philosophy, that he never devoted um, a full-length study to Aristotle or to any text of Aristotle's um, as he did for uh, for Plato, uh, specifically to the um, to the laws, but I think with regard to Homer, what Strauss is doing here is trying to address this question from the perspective of political philosophy as he conceives it rather than from the perspective of religion itself or even of other academic disciplines. And one of the things that I find um, provocative and sometimes uh, challenging about this essay, like many of Strauss's works, is that it's not always and perhaps not often clear what kind of argument it's making. Uh, Sometimes he is speaking in uh, a rather abstracted theoretical vein. 
And sometimes he seems to be making an historical argument that's credited, that's crediting the claims made by philosophers with direct causal influence on the course of Western civilization. Um, and it can be difficult to tell at any given time which argument um, is which. And I know we're we are working um, through the essay in the, the order in which it appears, but I think this becomes a problem later on uh, where Strauss suggests that the development um, of the idea of religious freedom in more recent times and particularly in the American tradition is primarily a result of philosophical influence. And, and uh, so as he's, he eventually makes makes a, a switch from the ancients uh, to the moderns, but first he wants to um, refute an idea that I've seen uh, kind of gain in popularity uh, in 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 some circles, uh, you know, which is which is the idea that um, these uh, ancient empires, I have the Roman Empire in mind, especially. Uh, were liberal in practice in some sense um, <clears throat> or in that, uh, you know, they had nothing akin to the First Amendment to protect, uh, you know, dissenting believers uh, or things like or, or anyone like that. Um, you know, but the, in reality, you had a kind of modus vivendi among uh, people of different sects or of different religions, um, uh, you know, who all lived, you know, well enough underneath it um and you know as a way of and, and so i guess I, I guess i should ask um and this isn't something he really touches but uh you know i'm interested that that's something that we no longer think is palatable um anymore even even if um we could have a sort of liberal in practice uh i'm using scare quotes here uh, you know, society akin to the Roman Empire, uh, without legal protection, uh, we would think that's that's inadequate um, somehow. Uh, and and you know what what's the change? Uh, where's the operative change that then makes that inadequate? Is it the idea of conscience? Uh, is it the idea of arbitrary power that you get in lock or something? Um, he doesn't, he doesn't, you know, specifically get to why that's objectionable. Um, but, 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 you know, I, I, I'm wondering where the change happens, where we as modern people used to something like the first amendment, uh, you know, look at that and say, it's not enough or we, we, we don't want that. So Strauss identifies two, as it were, parallel tracks or, or parallel sources of this idea. Um, one more sociological, for lack of a better word, um, the other more philosophical. And the sociological development to which he alludes very briefly, and I, I think too briefly, at least if you do want a historical argument, um, is the Protestant Reformation and the elevation of the Christian conception of conscience uh, to a, a core principle um, in what he calls political political theology. 
Um, so this is this is the idea um, uh, expressed in in some forms, even by figures like like Martin Luther, um, but much more directly in figures like Roger Williams. Um, that our 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 conscience, our our capacity for uh, for judgment is the image of the divine within us, um, and it is to do violence to the most important and divine portion of the human being to compel them to act against conscience. Conscience may mislead, uh, people may be damned to hell as a result of their, their errors in conscience, but that's, that's for God to sort out. And one can understand um, how that might lead over time to a more affirmative conception of toleration or even religious freedom that would say, no, it's, it's not good enough. As you suggest in reference to the Romans, it's not good enough simply that people are mostly left alone most of the time to do their thing. There have to be legal and institutional uh, protections. So that's, that's one track leading from the ancient solution to something that more closely resembles modern conditions. The other is a philosophical change, which Strauss sees occurring um, in early 16th century figures, um, most prominently Thomas More and Machiavelli. And these are thinkers who, in Strauss's account, are returning to the old compromise suggested by the classical philosophers and saying, look, it may be true that members of a political community need to share some ideas and practices oriented toward the divine. As, as Strauss puts it, that politics needs a religious sanction. But is it actually true that everyone has to agree on everything? And these thinkers answer, no, as long as there's a certain broad kind of agreement, probably there is scope, not only for private reservations, which are confined to the safety of one's own skull, but for very carefully hedged and constrained forms of dissent. And that's the argument that sets the ball rolling, as it were, um, in Strauss's account toward Hobbes. Uh, he suggests that Hobbes is the first major philosopher to challenge the premise and to say, actually, we don't need an established religion or a political religion in order to secure the goods of peace and prosperity uh, that, that politics offers. You could have an atheist regime or a non-religious regime. Hobbes doesn't exactly recommend this. Um, famously, uh, Hobbes proposes a, a monarchy um, in which the, the civil sovereign, the, the monarch, um, rather than uh, priests or a pope, um, are, is, head, is head of the church. But he at least says that it is possible. And for Strauss, it's this innovation by Hobbes, not just reviving and perhaps extending 
the classical distinction between uh, politics, religion, and philosophy, um, but actually rejecting the necessity of religion that leads over the course of the centuries um, to the modern notion of a secular state. And I'll just say one more thing about that, um, and then we can take the conversation um, where, where you like it. It's striking to me that in making this case, Strauss shifts almost immediately from Hobbes or really from Bale, but in any case, from the middle of the, of the 17th century to the 19th century and skips over for the most part, the 17th and 18th centuries. And this is important because as he says himself, um, the First Amendment to the Constitution and the American regime of religious freedom more broadly stems from that period. So American ideas and American practices of religious freedom seem to be caught between these two stages, between the, the classical solution that survives until the 16th century, more, more or less, and the modern fully secular solution that emerges in the 19th century, even if prefigured by Hobbes and Bale. Just as a note uh, for our, our listeners, um... You, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, earlier how there are some philosophers, uh, this isn't the classical conception, who might uh, opt out in secret, as it were, uh, from the civil religion. Um, and then and that one other operative change around the time of Hobbes and Bacon, especially, is that the, the purpose of philosophy changes to uh, secure our, for ourselves the means of commodious living or something. But the effect for, effect of that is that everyone becomes a everyone becomes a philosopher. So in, in in a way, it's almost extending what was only reserved for philosophers in the classical conception to everybody um, as well. Uh, but th this this idea that we're trapped between the seventeenth and nineteenth centuries um, <laughs> is, I guess, interesting as a so the the subtext of of this uh, lecture or what was lingering in the minds of people who were listening uh, was a recent Supreme Court ruling that banned prayer in public schools. Um, and so there's this lingering question of First Amendment jurisprudence, uh, at least if you're looking to what the original meaning of it was, that's kind of hovering um, hovering back here. And it, it just as a historical matter, it's interesting to see us as trapped between the 17th and the 19th uh, because so far as I'm concerned, uh, you know, the founders weren't extensively, or as far as I know, the founders weren't extensively citing Hobbes or Machiavelli. Um, and they certainly weren't citing, citing Mill, who he talks about later, or, you know, because they weren't a lot, he was, they weren't alive when he was, when he was writing. Uh, and I, I guess this is a question of, um, how he does, or, you know, how, how he wants us to think about history in that sense. Why not? And he mentions Locke, uh, you know, just say the, the, the American founders were reading Locke, therefore that's how we should interpret this. Not, we should interpret it as a sort of struggle between the 17th and 19th centuries. That, that, that To me, that's a weird way of framing it. Well, he does suggest that Locke and other figures of that period were 
the dominant influence on the American founding. And Strauss presents um, those figures, particularly Locke, Spinoza, and Rousseau, as attempting a sort of compromise solution, um, which suggests that toleration is good because it encourages all sorts of civil goods. Um, people don't fight. You don't have civil wars. Maybe there are economic advantages to certain kinds of religious belief. Um, I, I think Strauss describes it as something like uh, religion, religion plus economics, um, but not as making a principled case for religious freedom. And as he, he points out, all of these, these thinkers, but perhaps most famously Locke, constrain their account of a toleration in ways that are still surprising to us. Uh, Locke suggests in the letter on toleration um, explicitly that atheists should be banned from a well-constituted society. Although even then there's some of the old ambiguity about what an atheist is. Is it someone who holds certain opinions inside his mind or is it someone who acts in an anti-social uh, social manner? Um, and also uh, famously Locke hints, although he doesn't actually say as people, people often claim um, that Catholics should not be permitted um, to participate in in a properly ordered um, in a properly ordered commonwealth, and Strauss suggests that this is the the inspiration, in a general way. Since, as he acknowledges, the American framers and founders were not philosophers; they were practical men. Um, they they were looking for things that seemed to work in their in their situation. Um, for a conception of society which will be bound by some broadly shared principles of belief in something more or less like the, the, the biblical God. But within that, there will be all kinds of sects and denominations that more or less mind their own, um, mind their own business. So that's, that's Strauss's account of how the American order emerged from this 17th and 18th century um, interim. Um, whether that's accurate is a different question. Um, and although Strauss disclaims expertise in the First Amendment or American history, there is a great deal of very interesting and important scholarship that looks precisely at these at these questions and that I think casts doubt on Strauss's suggestion um, that the First Amendment or the American approach to religious freedom and toleration was primarily influenced by Locke or Spinoza and certainly not by Rousseau. I'm 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 reminded there of um <clears throat> And and I'm I'm not sure how the accounts shell, but of uh, uh, Charles Taylor characterizes America at, at least say up to the time of the Civil War as a neo-Durkheimian um, uh, a state um, which could actually a a afford to tolerate many different religious sects who 
saw themselves as participating in a sort of civil religion, um, you know, in a, a, a civil religion that kind of permeated the laws of the Constitution, which was deified in a sense. Um, and so a, a sort of general religion, uh, a bare minimum religion of the sort that uh, Thomas More has in mind in the utopia that he mentions, uh, but that would sustain all of these other sects. Um, but I'm, but nagging in the back of all this is the question of atheism, because I imagine as a historical matter, uh, if you were if you were to ask any of the framers of the First Amendment uh, whether they would tolerate someone preaching a sort of, you know, brute atheism of the time of the kind that we're that we're used to. Uh, the, that uh, the, they would deny tolerance to that um, is and 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 so would Locke we we know explicitly would um, and that's that I guess is where the change to 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 Mill becomes salient because uh, the the law hasn't changed uh, in nineteen 1960s when uh, when Strauss is giving this lecture. Uh, you know, or in a relatively tolerant England at the time that that Mill is, uh, um, you know, embarking on his career in uh, in Parliament, uh, but something else does, um, or, or at least between Mill, Mill and Strauss, uh, and, and 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 so where do where do we place that change, uh, and how does a sort of change not so much in political philosophy, or or uh, you know, one that shouldn't change how we interpret the political philosophy that underlined the Constitution, change how we respond to the questions in, we'll say, 1960, but, you know, we'll, I assume there's some relevance still. Well, I think that for, for Strauss, the issue is left the freedom to preach atheism, even uh, of a fairly brutish kind, um, then the claim that the state per se is not religious and has no authority to express displeasure with regard to atheism, even if not applying criminal penalties. Uh, he, he acknowledges here, yes, there, there is a tradition um, certainly in, in Britain and to some extent in America of village eccentric atheism. Right there's the old guy who refuses to go to church um, and shakes shakes his fist on on Sunday, um, and even in the 18th century, uh, that was by no means unknown. Um, and I don't think many of the the central figures in the War of Independence or uh, the framing of the Constitution would have said, "Well, that that person should go should go to go to prison." But most of them did believe, and this was written into the law of many states and to, in some ways even into, into federal law, that the government had a responsibility to endorse and promote religion that would outweigh and for social purposes exclude these few weirdos who might have very strange and unpopular um, unpopular opinions. By the early 19th century, and this is what Mill is, is doing in Strauss's account, there begin to be 
principal defenses of the village atheist. And Mill's argument in On Liberty is famously a claim that as a matter of principle, the village atheist should not only not be sent to prison, which was not very likely to happen, um, but should not suffer social penalties that are imposed outside uh, the realm of, of legal coercion. And sometime after that, it's not clear historically, and I don't think Strauss answers here, the argument became even more radical and suggested not only that there should be legal protections for atheists, but that the government itself should take no position on the relation or on the priority of religion to non-religion. So if we were to characterize briefly the, the pattern of development that Strauss describes, in the beginning uh, until the 17th century, more or less, there was consensus among political philosophers that the state should favor a particular religion. There should be an, an established religion, as we would say. Then from the 17th century until sometime in the early 19th century, the argument gained influence that the state should not support a particular religion, a particular sect or, or denomination, but should promote religion in general. Um, and with the understanding that this religion would have a more or less biblical character. And then finally, sometime in the 19th century, Strauss doesn't say exactly when, there was a third shift to the claim that the, the state as such should not be connected to, to religion. Shouldn't say anything against it, but shouldn't say anything for it either. And that's the condition that Strauss thinks is really philosophically unprecedented and questionable. So Strauss doesn't say that that development's inevitable, but reading through this account, it seems to me that it seems like it's necessarily going to follow that as soon as the political uh, consideration of religion becomes a legal consideration and the legal tolerance is, is established in, in such a way, once the state takes a position on non-religion and then irreligion, it seems like necessarily it's going to become a, an atheistic state, uh, the, as he describes later on in this lecture. Is that, is that not the case? Well, that seems to be what Strauss suggests. And this is one of the controversial aspects of Strauss's thought. He, he makes a version um, of that argument in his famous essay on three waves of modernity. And the, the, the three-phase structure that I just described corresponds fairly closely to the account of the three waves of modernity that, that, Strauss, um, that Strauss gives. So is it, is it inevitable? I think if you were to ask him after delivering a talk like this, Strauss would say, no, nothing is, is 
inevitable. But he does rely heavily on a sort of slippery slope argument uh, in which once this this movement gets going, um, it becomes more and more difficult and perhaps uh, impossible um, to prevent the descent to the the ultimate conclusion um, of the secular liberal state with with all of the pathologies that Strauss famously criticized. Um, speaking only for my myself, not as an interpreter of, of Strauss, I find that argument somewhat hard to accept. Um, to me, it is in the first place heavily intellectualist or, or idealist, as, as one must, must say. Uh, and the causal links uh, in, in Strauss are never altogether clear. He tends to um, jump from claims about what some philosopher thought to some grand social and political phenomenon without explaining exactly how one might get from point A to, to point B. Um, and second, it seems to be determinist to me. And it's determinist in a way that should be especially provocative for Americans, and, and perhaps Strauss intends it to be provocative for Americans, because if there is this strong tendency of the one phase to follow the other, then the American compromise or the, the American attempt to stay in the 18th century seems to be doomed to failure. And Americans and students of, of American politics are fond of quoting figures like Washington on the, the central importance of religion. And they read Tocqueville, who describes the flourishing of many sects and denominations in America and their contribution to democratic politics. Strauss is at least hinting or at least asking us to consider whether that was unavoidably temporary. And, and if, if, no, no, not at all. Um, and if then um, decisions like uh, the Supreme Court uh, ruling in Engel v. Vital, which is the, the case to which he alludes, which effectively uh, banned prayer um, in, in school. It doesn't quite say that, but that, that was um, the, the implication. Um, that's not a deviation or error or mistake, as many Americans, particularly American conservatives, then and now have suggested. It's, it's actually a logical, if not strictly inevitable consequence of the philosophical developments that he describes in the early modern period. And and that's where that's where I have trouble. And so so he doesn't talk about anyone post post mill um, when we know well that there's plenty of action after that. And so I want to I want to um, ask this uh, and you know pose this to you as your uh, as an expert on you know a scholar of these issues and less as an interpreter of Strauss now. Um, in the '60s and more so now, when he's giving this, sure there's a even if we grant him that there's a kind of jurisprudential logic that plays out 
through the First Amendment and the political philosophy that's inscribed in that. That there's there's two other, or at least a couple other things that are happening. One, of course, political philosophy developed and influenced, uh, you know, uh, his audience, uh, you know, or or at least uh, people contemporary with his audience. Um, and, and two is that his audience's moral sensibilities, if that's the right word, uh, you know, would have changed. And there are some American conservatives who uh, decry this. Um, but I, you know, I, I would say one of the kind of moral ideals of uh, us now-ish, uh, you know, is that the idea of too strong of an expressed public religion um, you know, I'm thinking of scenes in Poland of people brandishing crucifixes in people's faces, and there's a lot of people who uh, recoil at that. Um, and that's not a, a matter of um, of of law. Uh, that that's not by by a politician in Poland say doing that. Um, he is not coercing someone uh, into Catholicism in the legal legal sense, at least. Uh, but we recoil. Um, and I, and so, I mean, in, in my mind, we did an episode on Charles Taylor's politics of recognition, which traces a lineage here, but, um, you know, in, in, in your, in your work, how you think about the kind of moral imagination of America toward religion today, in, in broad strokes, cause this is a big question, but you know, what's the development of where Strauss, from where Strauss cuts off? Um, you know, how, how do we get to where our, our moral sensibilities uh, have changed so much, um, you know, along with some of the political justification as well? Well, first, um, just just for the record and, and for um, listeners who may not have the essay in front of them, Strauss does mention one figure after Mill, which is John Dewey. Um, but uh, Dewey serves for him as as something of of a punchline um, rather than as a significant philosophical interlocutor. Um, you, you can you can perceive in in his delivery that the audience is supposed to laugh, and I think the audience is actually rec- uh, recorded laughing at one point um, when he mentions. Um, Dewey. And that's because Dewey represents for Strauss and really for many American intellectuals around the middle of the 20th century, the epitome of naive, optimistic liberalism. Um, Dewey was associated with the argument that society is a sort of grand experiment and we try out different stuff and we'll just see how it turns out. Um, And Strauss's answer to that, um, uh, like uh, the answer of Reinhold Niebuhr, who was also a great critic of Dewey and many others, is, well, look how that turned out. Um, particularly in the wake of the Second World War and the the revelation of of the Holocaust, that kind of easygoing experimentalism no longer longer seemed um, credible. So he does mention Dewey, but I I don't think he takes Dewey um, very seriously, um, except as perhaps um, an example of, of how not to be a political 
philosophers. Um, but that then leaves the question, how, how do we get from arguments about the individual rights of the village weirdo, who happens to be an atheist, to the kind of claims about the radical separation, not just of church and state, but of religion and civic life that are found in Engel v. Vital and in some of the other Supreme Court decisions and broader civil libertarian uh, movement of, of the early 60s. And here, I think Strauss simply does not pay enough attention to the sociological track that emerges from the Protestant Reformation. He does talk about it. He, he acknowledges the conventional story of how religious toleration became a pragmatic solution to the wars of religion. And he acknowledges that the idea of, of conscience as an inviolable faculty may play a, a role not in political philosophy, as he defines it, but rather in political theology, um, specifically uh, Christian political theology, but it's not the main story that he wants to tell. And if the question is historical rather than philosophical, I think that's where we need, um, we need to, to look. Um, the, the Protestant assumption, or maybe I should say a, a Protestant assumption, because it's not shared in the same way or to the same degree by all Protestants, that religion consists in inward conviction. It's about what you really believe with, with your, your mind and your heart and your soul. And that religious communities or churches are voluntary associations very, very deeply infuses American culture. And it's not so hard to understand how those same assumptions could lead toward a form of secularism or liberal neutrality. Because all you have to say is there are some number of people who really believe in their with their minds and hearts and soul that there, there is no that there is no God. And they don't want to be compelled to participate in associations that are based on belief in such a God, uh, partly because it would be inconvenient for them in certain ways, but also as, as a matter of conviction, which we are bound to respect. And I think I'm speaking um, now in my historian's guise, and I, I developed this argument a little bit in, um, in, in my After Nationalism book, that that is the source of the developing American conception of religious freedom and separation of church and state, much more than high philosophical liberalism. And it backs into a result that resembles high philosophical liberalism, not because of some grand account of how best to promote the common good or the requirements of an ordered society or civic virtue or anything like that, but because a central assumption of American 
culture, partly for theological reasons, is that individuals really matter and you can't force them to do things they don't want to do unless you have an extremely good reason. And if you hold more or less Protestant, maybe we should say small p Protestant, assumptions that religion is founded on inward conviction and that religious communities are voluntary associations, it is very difficult. I won't say impossible, but it becomes very, very difficult to defend the kind of state support and promotion of religion that Strauss seems to endorse. And the greater the religious diversity or religious pluralism, the harder that becomes. Strauss, by stopping uh, the, the story um, in the early 19th century, more or less, um, is able to avoid confronting the immense proliferation of religious sects that occurs internally um, in, in the 1820s and 1830s. And he does mention briefly um, uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints, um, but also as a result of immigration. And one of the American responses, and the one that I, I think inspires Engel v. Vital, again, more than a grand philosophical liberalism, is to throw up one's hands and say, look, there are all of these different kinds of people. They believe all different kinds of things. Um, there is no clear way to determine institutions or rituals that aren't going to make someone very angry. So we're not even going to try. And it's worth remembering that the alternative um, to Engel v. Vital was not a, a theologically and morally rich prayer derived from a particular religious tradition. It was by intention a vague, general, non-sectarian prayer that they thought would be acceptable to just about everyone. And the question that I think um, should be posed, and, and what, what I might ask, um, ask Strauss if I were in, in his audience, is about the alternative between a, a neutral or, or secular state and a state that is not committed to any particular religion with all the dangers, but also with all of the, the virtues and resources that brings, but to a kind of vague, non-denominational, non um, neutral affirmation of some kind of God who somehow cares about us. And the answer to that question may be that it's still better to have a religion um, of, of the kind that President Eisenhower famously expressed uh, when, when he said, um, uh, everyone should be religious and I don't care what religion it is. But it's not immediately obvious to me that that is better than a secular state or that a religion of that very vague, watery, and anodyne kind can have the effects in promoting 
civic virtue, solidarity, and so on, um, that the tra- classical tradition of political philosophy um, was was looking for. And, and to the religious person, you could also imagine that the the weak, watered down anodyne anodyne public religion might even have an enervating effect on the um, the you know sort of uh, thick integral. Uh, religion that they want, say, themselves and their children practicing. And so you could imagine adducing religious reasons to supporting something more just purely secular. Yes, and I I think um, that that is, if not a consequence, then is at least compatible with some of these small p Protestant assumptions about what religion is and 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 how it how it should work that thoroughly infuse american culture um even among many americans who are not protestants not christians and perhaps in in some cases regard themselves as atheists just one more word on on that on that point um since it since it since it occurs to me, um, because it it relates to to Mill, you know Mill is is somewhat badly chosen it seems to me um, as a representative of the modern liberal argument um, for religious religious freedom or or religious toleration uh, because Mill really really was um, a non a non believer an atheist in the Strauss. Straussian sense of atheist, not believing in a personal God, whatever cosmic views he he may um, may have had. But as a political matter, uh, the greatest support for the disestablishment of the Church of England um, and uh, the the secularization, as it were, of the British state was not from atheists or philosophers. It was from dissenting Protestants. And that was because they thought not that the state was too religious, but that it wasn't religious enough. And vice versa, the most vocal supporters, certainly the most influential supporters of the Church of England, of the established church, tended not to be the people who were most religious, but rather those who valued its political, institutional, and cultural role. So it's it's not clear to me that the, the resistance to an established church or political religion, um, as, as Strauss describes it, necessarily comes or even primarily comes from non-believers in the United States, and I, I would say in the Anglo-American tradition more broadly, it's tended to come from religious believers who have said that precisely because they believe in a personal God, they cannot accept a watered-down, anodyne, politically useful, but spiritually empty kind of religion. So in short order, I'd like to get to the conclusion uh, of Strauss's remarks in, in this lecture, which I think are quite interesting. But but first, I and to help with framing uh, of those concluding remarks, 
I would like to spend a, a, a moment trying to understand how we should conceptualize Strauss's role in giving this lecture and uh, his self-perceived role. As we mentioned earlier, he, he's very explicit in considering himself a social scientist. The, the scientific aspect it seems to be key uh, to what he's doing. But in, in the history he gives in this lecture, um, well, he, he talks about new developments in, in science, uh, changes affected by Machiavelli and even more so by Hobbes, uh, Strauss mentions too. The first is this, science is for the sake of power. Science is not, and science means always philosophy, that is not different at this time. Science is not for its own sake, but for the sake of power, for the relief of man's estate, as someone called it. A second difference, the common people, the non-philosophers, can become enlightened. The philosophic scientific teaching does no longer remain a preserve of a so-called intellectual elite, but is spread, is broadcast, and transforms the whole citizen body. Science becomes, for the first time, a public power. It becomes a public power because it forms the minds of large masses of men. So it seems like the change here is that science, and by extension philosophy, becomes very deeply concerned with power, and particularly its power in influencing society writ large, informing the minds of men. How then should we take Strauss's self-understanding uh, as a social scientist, as a political scientist. And what does that mean uh, going into sort of his prescriptions towards the end of this lecture? Well, I think that Strauss was trying to revive the older and, in his view, superior understanding um, of science, or, or as he preferred to say, um, philosophy, which avoided that sort of public role. And rather than seeking to recreate the political community along rational or, or scientific lines, rather accepted the political community as, as it existed and engaged in various practices of prudent self-restraint in order to engage freely in the pursuit of truth. So for, for Strauss, modern science, uh, including modern political science, is about power. It's about how you do stuff in the world. And that may be a kind of truth, but it's what Machiavelli calls the, the effectual truth, not the ultimate truth. It's, it's the truth about what works. It's, it's pragmatic. Strauss is trying to, throughout his, his career, trying to revive and reorient political science toward the pursuit of truth, whatever it may be whether it is useful or actionable or not. And that, I think, is why he concludes, as he often does in these lectures, simply by restating, restating the question. A modern social scientist would have to have a recommendation and say, okay, here's the situation, and here's how I think we can resolve it or, or we, can, we can make things better. And Strauss very pointedly says, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Rather, I'm going to show you 
why I think there is a fundamental contradiction between these possibilities, between the demands of philosophy, the demands of, of politics, and the demands of, of religion. And I don't know the answer. And in that respect, he is positioning himself in what he characterizes as the Socratic tradition. I don't know if I find that to be a satisfying uh, answer, though. It does seem like it seems like the two tenets trying to understand power, how it works, what it influences, and perhaps its uh, its directionality, as well as forming the minds of men, is exactly what he's doing in this lecture and giving a history of how these different um, philosophic forces have exerted themselves on our society, how, how the duality of both uh, political thought and, and changes in legal thought ha have changed uh, the dynamics and whose um, voices are, are politically salient. And then in reconfiguring how, how people are, are understanding these issues, it seems like in at least one sense, both of those are accurate descriptors of what, what he's doing. Maybe not to the same extent. I, I think you're right. It's um, This is not a usual uh, sort of political science lecture. There's no policy proposal here. But it does seem that he, he's pointing out where he is concerned with philosophic power and, and how... how uh, man's mind is is made no well i think yeah i think that's true but he he's concerned with philosophic power for a limited purpose and in a limited way um so for for strauss the primary purpose of philosophic politics is to protect the possibility of continuing to do philosophy is to make sure philosophers don't end up like Socrates. And that is a political goal, which does require engagement uh, with, with the rest of the political community, but it's a limited goal. It's not attempting, as Strauss claims uh, Hobbes, Bacon, and their intellectual descendants tried to do, to refound the whole society on a new basis. Um, it's, it's, it's rather a form um, of what uh, some of Strauss's contemporaries in more conventional political science would have called interest group politics, right? Philosophers are, are a group. They have interests. They don't want to be oppressed. And philosophical politics is about protecting those, those interests. But in addition to being limited in its goal, Strauss's presentation of philosophic politics is limited in its means. So the, the modern philosophers um, Strauss discusses, at least in his account, address themselves to the public at large. Uh, this for Strauss is what is at stake in um, the, the concept of enlightenment, that everyone not just a select few can become enlightened. They might not become as smart as, as a philosopher, but they can transcend the condition of ignorance and prejudice in which they have been, been brought up. The older form of philosophic politics that Strauss's 
Strauss sketches here is not addressed to the people at large. It's, it's addressed to a narrow class um, that Strauss describes as the gentleman um, and that he, he characterizes here as um, uh, being members of an urban patrician class. And the relations with the, the philosophers of the philosophers to the gentlemen have two purposes. First, the gentlemen um, become friendly to philosophers. So when they go out and become uh, rich and powerful, they protect them, or at least um, at least they don't hurt them. And second, maybe some of these gentlemen uh, have the potential within themselves to become philosophers and to transcend uh, the, the demands of wealth and wealth and power. And who is Strauss talking to uh, in, in this lecture? He's talking to an audience um, at a, a leading American university in the heart of Chicago. So students at the University of Chicago were not exactly urban patricians, it, it, it must be acknowledged, um, but it is a different kind of audience to the one um, that Strauss argues um, Hobbes, Bale, Machiavelli, and, and the rest um, were, were addressing. So this isn't, this isn't a, a withdrawal from politics entirely. But it is an example of a much more limited kind of politics, both with regard to, to its goal, the, the self-protection or, or preservation of philosophy, and to its means, which have to do with influencing this small class of people who have the time and interest and ability and resources to listen to philosophers and, and, and learn from them but are not going to go all the way and devote their lives to the pursuit of truth. So um, that, that provokes another question insofar as how successful, <clears throat> as a lobbyist, how successful would uh, Strauss be for, for the interest group of philosophers here? But um, I, I guess more, more detailed, the, we would expect that this trajectory of freedom of religion uh, would make it more possible or more free or more acceptable, more fecund uh, to have thoughts that run uh, contrary to the regime or, or to uh, popular belief. It seems like freedom of religion would be um, quite a beneficial thing for freedom of, of philosophy. Uh, it seems that the development Strauss uh, sketches out would largely would help. Reading through this, it, it would seem to me that there should be a better state uh, of philosophy along this historical development that doesn't seem to be extant in observed experience. Uh, but also, I, I don't think Strauss seems seems to see it. Early on in this lecture, he discusses a crisis in philosophy and especially political philosophy uh, that, that's flailing in large part because it's been an object of, of such uh, great public 
focus. Uh, there's an inflation of such words, such as events that are historic or ideas that are philosophic, that belie how little substance there actually is in, in philosophical content or, or, or in, in serious thought occurring in our society. And, and why is that? If there's been a liberation, a freedom from the state-established religion, the, the state-established culture, why hasn't philosophy flourished yet and seems likely to have regressed? You, you may not be aware, um, but the, the French political theorist Claude Lefort, uh, who's a very interesting and, and neglected figure, actually posed exactly that question. Um, to Strauss, not not directly, uh, as far as I know, they they never met, but in um, his his writings on Strauss, and he says, um, in effect, look by your own account, Mister Strauss, modern democracy should be a really good place to do philosophy because there are all of these people; they have different uh, views of lots of things, and you can go down to the marketplace or or to the mall or or whatever, and you can talk to them, and you can you can be like you can be like Socrates. So why this rhetoric of of crisis? And I, I think that's a good question um, for which Strauss does not have a fully satisfying uh, satisfying answer. And although it's it's true, as he points out, that Athens um, had certain legal restrictions that we would today find intolerable, and of which Socrates fell fell afoul, um, it was still a very colorful kind of place with a lot of people saying and teaching and arguing about a lot of different things. Um, which seems awfully familiar in certain respects. And the same, it's been suggested, was true um, of the Hellenistic period and at least portions of the Roman Empire. So thinking along those lines, one might argue that Strauss exaggerates the difference between the present and the ancient world, uh, highlighting the admitted, the admitted difference between a, a principle liberalism enshrined in political institutions and a kind of practical toleration that had all sorts of uh, exceptions. But maybe, maybe it was not as different as Strauss suggests um, here. But I think that if you were to pose this to Strauss, his answer would have less to do with the differences between ancient and modern societies and more to do with the differences in the way philosophy is understood by people who call themselves philosophers or scientists. In other words, our problem is not that America is different from Athens. Our problem is that we don't have a Socrates and we can't even understand what Socrates is getting at. And the obstacle to understanding Socrates and attempting to, to imitate him in, in however unsatisfactory fashion is in Strauss's view, this new conception of science as oriented toward power or what Machiavelli called the effectual truth, that it's about getting, getting things done 
And what I think Strauss is doing at the end of the lecture again, when, when he concludes on, on a question, is recalling that Socratic image and saying, it's not our job to figure out how to fix things or how to move forward or how to get things done. Our job is to raise this fundamental question, which is going to make a lot of people quite angry. And it is a fun, it, it, it is a fundamental question and it is a provocative one, as you can see in, in the question and answer. Um, people, Americans, I, I think, um, really don't want to reflect on whether it would be better to have a government that affirms and promotes and institutionalizes religion in, in some way, or a society in which it refuses to do those things. On that, I think we've um, uh, you know, treated what happens both to philosophy and to religion, and I did uh, promise you that this would take no more than 90 minutes, and we're on the 91st. Um, so I just want to say uh, thank you very much, Professor Goldman, for joining us. Um, this was a this was a fantastic conversation, um, and um, yeah, well, I, and I'll have to you know go back and reread the essay uh, in light of all of this and see you know what more we can pull out. But it's been a real pleasure. It's been a pleasure uh, for me as as well, and I'm I'm delighted to talk about this with you. Well, thank you.